0: This morning, as Jerry mentioned, we're going to talk about contentment because that's what the text gives us. We're nearing the end of this series on joy, and one of the differences, the incredible differences with the way in which Paul delivers God's truth to us in the way that we often want to get it, is the difference between expository preaching and topical preaching, you know, we could talk today about contentment and the five handy-dandy ways to uh, produce it in your life, or we could look at what the Scriptures tell us through the Apostle Paul. And when the Lord deals with this topic in the Scriptures, He always starts with Jesus and what Jesus has done, and then as a result, how we can appropriate what Christ has done. So it isn't depending on you, but rather depending on the Lord. And every song that we've sung sets a perfect foundation. In fact, this, this uh, sermon and this exposition of the Scripture is just commentary on so much of what we've sung today. I'd like to look at two texts. The first one from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's in the second letter that we have, beginning in verse 9. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And then our text today from Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly now... At length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Last Saturday, up in the sanctuary, we had a memorial service for one of my favorite people, Blant Zeitler. Her son told me that when he was a little boy and he hated to go to school like many little boys do, his mother used to say, Mark, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And as we read that text... In that memorial service, I thought of another man who was 43 years old when the emperor or the king of England was assassinated. At the time, at 43, he was a country gentleman. He was not a military man. He had five children at home. And yet, within a decade, Oliver Cromwell became the ruler of three kingdoms, England, Scotland, and Wales. Seven years ago, November 23rd, 2008, was the 350th anniversary of his death. And in London at Westminster Abbey they held a service of celebration. Guess what text they read? Philippians 3 or 4 10 to 13. And the reason they read that text was because the 13th verse was, in the opinion of Oliver Cromwell, the greatest Scripture God had ever applied to his heart. He said that Scripture, that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me, Save my life. When his son Robert was killed in a battle, he was in deep despair. He talked about it in terms of gloom. Many people came to him to comfort him, and nothing worked until someone came to him and read those words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Three years later, one of his generals lost his son in battle. Cromwell sat down and wrote that man a letter, and he said, I pray that these words bring the comfort to you that they brought to me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When his daughter faced the death of her husband and financial disrepair, he wrote her a letter. And he said, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And then when he was on his deathbed, he called for a man to come and read those words, just those words. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now think of what Paul is saying here. What he's not saying is I can do all things. He knows that he can't do all things and yet the culture in which he lives was the same culture in which we live. It was a culture that was permeated by people who believed they could do all things. You know, you hear that all the time. You can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can make a way. You can be what you want to be. If I just had more money, if I just had a better spouse, if I just could have my son or daughter back, if I just had another job, if I just had an opportunity. But Paul never says that. Years ago, I was studying contemporary theology with a friend from Chicago and another man some of you have heard of, R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul was talking about contemporary theology, and he said, you know, the greatest mark, the greatest mark of difference between Reformed theology and contemporary theology is the viewpoint that we have about the sovereignty of God. In the Reformation, the sovereignty of God was everything. In contemporary theology, it's almost nothing. It's the sovereignty of Man. And then I'll never forget, R.C. Sproul quoted William Henley's Invictus, which is a perfect poem written in 1850, a perfect poem that summarizes the prevailing view of our culture. Out of the night that covers me, black is black from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the clutches of circumstance, I've not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeon of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of a shade. I am, and yet the menace of the years, finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Paul would say that's absolutely ridiculous. That's what I believed when I was Saul. I don't believe that anymore. Paul knew that if you're the captain of your own ship, you're headed for shipwreck. It's like the man who lived in New York City who hit it big and he did what he always wanted to do, buy a yacht, and then he called his mother and said, Mama, I want to show you something. He picked her up in a limousine, brought her to the New York harbor and said, Mama, that's my ship. She said, Irving, that's not your ship. They got on board and everybody salutes her son, and she begins to think it might be his ship. He calls the first mate and says, Get my mama a drink, and so he does, and he goes below deck. And he dresses in a white captain's uniform with big brass buttons and a captain's hat. And he comes up and says, Mama, I'm a captain. She says, to you use a captain, to me use a captain, but to a captain you ain't no captain. Now that's exactly what Jesus says to you and me. That's exactly what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus. You may be a captain to you, but you ain't no captain. And here in the final chapter of Paul's letter of joy. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, unless the Holy Spirit is captaining your life, you're headed for shipwreck. Last week, Bill talked about two gifts that the Holy Spirit brings to every Christian, joy and peace. And today, Paul adds a third, contentment. They're all related. They're absolutely all related. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the perspective. Look at verse 10a. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now what causes his rejoicing? Why does he say at this point, I rejoice in the Lord greatly? In other words, I have a supercharged joy. Why? Well, we read about it in the verses that came right before Epaphroditus has come and brought him a gift, a financial gift. On on Easter Sunday, we mentioned that the Philippian church was the only church that ever bankrolled Paul's missionary journeys. And here, while he's in prison under, under arrest, with a sentence of death hanging over his head, Epaphroditus comes from Philippi with another gift. And Paul says in response to getting that gift, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. It's not the money that brings us joy. It's his perspective. The word rejoice comes from the Greek root word, which is the same word from which we get joy, gift, and grace. So think of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, because of your gift of grace, my joy has exploded. You say, how is that possible? How can he say that and mean that? There's only one way Paul who is chained between two imperial guards can say my joy my rejoicing explodes greatly and that's that Paul has been able to differentiate between happiness and joy I mean think of this happiness in your life and my life is based on happenings you win the 50-50 I'm happy your teenage child Washes your car and you're happy. You get straight A's and you're happy. Someone knows your name and you're happy. Happiness is contingent on happenings. But what Paul is saying is joy is totally different. It is a gift. Joy is a gift of divine grace that transcends happenings. And I'll tell you exactly how Paul gets there. He applies the big truths to the little circumstances of his life. He always applies the big truth to the circumstances or the problems of his life. In verse 1, he says to these women who are arguing, Stand firm in the Lord. In other words, quit arguing. How? How can they stop arguing? He tells them three verses earlier. You are citizens of heaven. In other words, apply that big truth to your momentary problem. Regardless of your opinions, regardless of your feelings, regardless of your contentions, you are who you are, and that is a citizen of heaven. Your sisters in Christ. Your worth does not come from winning an argument. Your worth comes from who you are. Jesus bought you. Now think of Paul. If anyone had reason to be unhappy and discontented, it's Paul. He's in prison for no good reason. He's done nothing wrong. Why should he be there? And yet he doesn't allow those circumstances to get in the way of the big truth, which is... Bound or free, he belongs to Jesus. He sees that all the happenings of his life, all the circumstances, never can obscure what happened in Jesus' life. You see, Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. Jesus secured everything that Paul needs. Jesus is in charge of his life Every one of his problems is Jesus' problem. You see, that's Paul's perspective. I'm not in prison here alone. Jesus is with me. Whatever your problem is in life, Jesus shares it with you. Have you lost a loved one? Jesus is there with you. Have you lost a job? Jesus is there with you. Do you have a pain of your circumstances? Jesus is there with you. The big thing shapes the small thing. The momentary incidents in his life pales in significance to the eternal reality that he is in Christ. Do you get that? I mean, there are a lot of folks in church who grieve because people everywhere do. And it's important to, when a person is grieving, to affirm that grief. It's difficult it's painful but what's the answer the answer is not to wallow in the grief it's to see the big picture take the big truth and apply it to that circumstance there are no accidents Jesus has planned it all the truth is he even takes our sin and turns it to his purpose second notice the provision look at verse 11b For I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. Now, that word content in the Greek language is a huge word. It was a popular word. 500 years before Paul, a man named Socrates, you've probably heard of him. He said that the highest virtue a man can achieve is contentment. It is the virtue that defines a self-sufficient man. All of one's application of mind and will must be toward being self-sufficient and being content. And Paul absolutely disagrees. You say, how do you know he dis- disagrees with Socrates' definition? Well, I don't know much Greek. Greek. But I know that Paul uses the word two times. And each time, it is in the aorist tense. You know what the aorist tense means? Completed action. So what Paul is saying is that contentment is not something that a Christian has to struggle to gain or achieve. Rather, contentment is a gift that breaks into the heart of a Christian who is invaded by the Holy Spirit. You see, the only struggle that that is ever had in order for you to be content is with the struggle that Jesus went through. Now think of the typical definition of contentment. Contentment typically is defined this way. To be happy with your circumstances. Paul says that's not the right definition. The only other place Paul uses the word is 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. There he's talking about money. He's talking about a cheerful giver. Listen to what he says. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that in everything always having enough you may abound in every good work. That word always having enough, that word in Greek is one word and it's the word contentment. So let me put that word in that verse And God, who is able to make all grace abound toward you in everything, totally content, you may abound in every good work. So how does Paul define contentment? According to Paul, contentment is defined as this. Believing that you have enough, no matter how much you have. Contentment means believing that you have enough no matter how much you have. You know what's discontentment? You know that's definition? Never believing you have enough. Always wanting more. Contentment is believing that you have enough. So Paul is in jail in Rome between two imperial guards. And he's content, meaning what? I have enough. Imagine a person who has an amputated leg saying, I have enough. Then they get the next leg, I have enough. <laughs> I have enough. I'm content. Because Paul understands when you have Jesus, you have enough. And then third, notice the prize. Look at verse 12b. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, anytime Paul says, I've learned the secret, you should circle that word, secret. Okay, what's the secret? Years ago on Easter, I sang a song, B.J. Thomas's version, Hooked on a Feeling, and because of my cold, I won't attempt it. <clears throat> And the reason I sang that was we were in John 20. We were looking at Mary Magdalene and she's hooked on a feeling. What is her feeling? It's over. My Lord is dead. Somebody has stolen the body. She's a mass of grief. She's hooked on a feeling and the feeling is defeat. So what's Jesus do? He comes to her. She thinks he's a gardener. She says, where have you put him? And he says to her, Mary, he calls her by name. He shows her the big picture. Remember the poem? You probably don't. I've only told it ten times. (laughs) Three men are walking on a wall, feeling fact and faith. When feeling had an awful fall, faith was taken back. So close was faith to feeling that he stumbled and fell too. But fact remained and pulled faith up and faith pulled feeling too. What is the fact? What is the fact that never falls for any Christian? It is the secret of which Paul is speaking. It enables him in any circumstance to be content. It's the same secret Oliver Cromwell came to understand. What is it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, in Greek, that preposition through can be translated in as well. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. What is the secret? He's in Christ. That's the secret. I'm not alone. He is in me. I am in Him. That means any challenge, any change, any failure, any struggle is His problem. Any circumstance I face, I face it because I'm in Him. He and I are inseparable. That's the fact that Paul underlines as the greatest fact of faith. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then fourth and finally, notice the practice. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Did you know that recently there was a survey done of American Christians and 80% said, 80% said God who... Helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. 80% of all Christians said, This is biblical truth. God helps those who help themselves. God help us. <laughs> 75% said this, and I've heard this thousands of times God will nev- never give you more than you can handle. That is absolute bovine scatology. <laughs> God's in the business of giving you more than you can handle. I mean, don't you know that as a Christian? He is in the business of giving you more than you can handle so that you will understand there's only one person who can handle it, and it's Him. The fact is, God has set it up that way. Why? So that we can discover that while we are weak, He is strong. And the older Paul gets, the more he's aware of that. Now, Paul tells us three ways in which we're to grow in contentment, which is a gift. You don't gin it up. The Lord gives it to you, but there are three ways to grow in it. These are the practical applications. But the truth is the whole thing has been a practical application. First of all, he says, think on these things. Thinking is a key to contentment. Did you know that in these four chapters, Paul uses 55 thinking words? Remember. Consider. Reason. Think. So he's in prison. False teachers have invaded the church of Philippi. There's contention in the ranks. He has every reason to be concerned and discontented. But guess what? He's contented how? Because he thinks about other things. He views every problem through the lens of Christ. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. And he does. And the chief thing that he thinks about is this. I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will see it to the day of completion. You get that? It doesn't matter how gloomy it seems in Philippi. Paul knows, and he tells us in verse 7 of chapter 1, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will see it to the day of completion. In other words, those false teachers won't win. Those complaining, arguing women won't win. Jesus will win. Not only does Paul think about those things, he also prays about those things. But look at how he prays. He says, in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. What Paul is saying is, don't pepper your prayers to God with your own wishes. You know, most of the prayers that I've prayed over my life is for a a certain outcome. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would make this happen, and you know what this is. <laughs> oh, Lord, I mean, I've tried to be faithful. I, I know I'm not, but you are, and so give me that. You know what Paul says? Don't pray that way. He says, when you make your petitions to the Lord, your supplications, praise Him for any outcome. I got a perfect illustration of that this week. A woman came to talk to me, and she had some serious financial problems. You know what she said to me? I've been praying about this, and I've decided that whatever he does for me will be okay because he's good. In other words, I'd certainly like the circumstances to work out this way, but I'm convinced that he's good, and so whatever he chooses is cool. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Isn't that what he means when he says, all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Don't just think about these things, but when you pray, thank the Lord for any outcome, because you know that He's in charge, and whatever outcome come, happens, it's according to His plan. Then one last thing he says: He knows that contentment grows by knowing that He is in this with others. I mean, think of that gift that Epaphroditus brings. That gift signals something to Paul. What is, what is it that's signaled? I'm in prison. God's at work in me, but He's also at work in them. I'm in this with them. You see, to Paul, it's not about me, it's about we. And Paul knows that when he cannot see the Lord's hand in his own life, all he has to do is look at other believers. And see what Christ is doing in them, and he's not jealous. He's content because he knows that we're in the same body together. Did you hear about the old country boy that was out in Northern California taking a tour of the great sequoias? The tour guide said, Well, you know, these trees are 300 feet tall, but you need to recognize that and know that they have very shallow roots. In fact, their roots don't go down more than a couple of feet into the earth. The old country boy said, ha ah, ha that's false. I don't believe a word of it. Back home, if you had a high tree like that with no deep roots, and a storm coming, it's going to tumble over. The guide smiled and said, yes sir, I hear that all the time. The difference with these trees is their roots are so intertwined that when the storm comes and the wind blows, they hold each other up. Paul knows that to be true about Jesus and His body. The same is true for you. You're not in this alone. You are in Christ and with him comes a whole collection of other believers so when it's dark in your particular part of the forest just look at the light in your brothers and sisters and say hey jesus is at work in them he's got to be at work in me too you see that's the kind of contentment that paul practices that's the kind of contentment that oliver cromwell came to recognize that's the kind of contentment that Blant Zeitler, my good friend, came to recognize. And in the words of Paul, we all would do well to think about that. Amen.